Welcome, everybody, to the official Chelsea FC podcast. Chelsea mic'd up. We will recap a dull affair at Samford Bridge. But Chelsea get two goals off to the semis. Drew Manchester City, kind of a tough draw. We'll talk about it, and we'll recap the game against Sheffield United. All that and more on this episode of Chelsea Mic'd Up. Vamos! Well, I said it was a dull affair in the intro, Chris, and, and it wasn't dull. There were some exciting moments, some nervy moments, too. Just wasn't Chelsea's best performance. This was one of the flatter performances from Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel, and that's a sign of a good team, by the way. Not putting up your best effort and still coming away with a multi-goal victory. 2-0, the final. McGoldrick, he burned up all that great capital he had (laughs) with one absolute sitter of an opportunity that he missed. So, Kepa gets a clean sheet. What is this? 10 clean sheets out of a possible 12 or 13? It's it's remarkable. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go to his uh, transfer mark page to confirm. But yeah, I mean, Kepa doesn't, didn't have a ton to do, but he did make a couple of saves. And that McGoldrick miss is kind of what you'll remember the game for. Actually, I, I give real credit to Sheffield United. I kind of ruled them out as competitors for this game. But first 20 minutes, their pressing was really intense. It made, it made it really difficult for Chelsea to play. And Thomas Tuchel, after the match, kind of in his press conference, was saying that, look, after Atletico... It was a mental burnout. This is the 14th game that he's managed already. And you think, oh, what a short space of time he's managed it in. They're trying to figure out which players are going on international breaks and have to serve COVID protocols. I think they just have kind of arrived at this game running out of gas, hoping that they can get over the line in this one. Maybe not necessarily for a brilliant performance, but get over the line, win the game, get to the semifinal, and then we'll regroup after the break. And that's basically what they did. Yeah, they got over the line, and there were some bright spots. Look, Hakeem Ziyech, totally a different player after getting on the score sheet. You're kind of hoping what happens to him happens to Christian Pulisic, who, by the way, put in a man-of-the-match performance despite not getting on the score sheet. He had that one highlight reel dribble in the box, where he takes on three defenders. Oh, it's my just, God. It's just beautiful. And and you, it's moments like that that he can provide an aspect to this Chelsea attack that no one else really has. Timo has, obviously, the afterburners on him. He has the speed. But that ability to create something out of nothing and dribble in traffic and get in the box. And look, dude got whacked around that entire game. I, I'm sure he was feeling pretty, uh, pretty bruised up after it. Not the kind of game you want him going into international duty with if uh, you're a a men's national team supporter because I'm sure he was feeling that for a little bit. But that is a skill set that really I think only he has on this team. It's something that Chelsea carved so much of their identity out of when N. Hazard was here. And it's not a fair comparison. It's not even a viable comparison, quite actually. But when you see that, you can't help but harken back to the days of Eden Hazard in that blue shirt making those moves because that was the last player that had that capability as a Chelsea player. And it's those moments of brilliance that remind you, if you're trying to write off this player, don't. And he puts in a man-of-the-match performance as well to boot, Chris. Yeah, dribbles and take-ons. That's what Christian Pulisic is excellent at. And it's kind of amazing because, that, like as you said, that's what Eden Hazard was good at. But when it's not going well for him, those dribbles and take-ons end up in the ball being dispossessed. And actually, I thought first 20, 30 minutes of the game, 
it looked like it was trending in that direction. There were a few times where the ball was taken off him, but then after that one bit of skill in the box that you mentioned, which was just extraordinary, like he's taken on three guys and it's just this little subtle movement to get the ball away from the defender and then cut inside and he ends up shooting towards Aaron Ramsdale. Produces a good save, to be fair. And then he has the absolute sitter in the second half, which Thomas Tuchel actually kind of described as a turning point, right? Like, that's a chance you need to be putting away so we can put this game to bed and cruise to victory. But then there's a lot of suffering. You, you you give up a lot of chances after that and you hang on for the victory with, with Ziyech getting that goal in extra time. But Pulisic, just in terms of bright, inspirational moments, it might not have resulted in a goal, but it gives you a good deal of confidence that maybe this is a player who can feature in the side more often. In American football, they have this saying that so-and-so has a healthy amount of interceptions for a quarterback. And I kind of view a player being dispossessed that way. Obviously, you have these vacuums of players that don't really create that they get dispossessed. That's not a good player. But Christian is going to get dispossessed a bit more, not making excuses, because he's taking a bit more chances. And if we saw what was happening, particularly during the Lampard era, you needed him to get in to places and spots where he might be dispossessed because no one else was showing that instinct to attack. Now so with the defense being uh, what it is and our incredible ability to limit counterattacks, I can understand probably being a bit more conservative and not wanting your players to get dispossessed. I mean, who does? But I still think it's about a healthy level when it comes to Christian Pulisic, so long as he has an attacking mindset that he displayed really during Project Restart. That's a player that we hope would be the consistent version of Christian Pulisic. Hasn't quite been there mm-hmm. during what's been confusing is that this is his most healthy spell as a professional footballer. But it requires a run of games, right? I think one of the things that you're seeing is that what Christian Pulisic does is hard, right? So when he is Chelsea's best player in the post-restart period, he's doing a lot of things where he's weaving through two defenders and the ball just seems like it's stuck to his foot. But when it's not and you try those things, you're giving the ball away. But as you as you mentioned, it's kind of that audacity. It's that desire to try things and create havoc in in the opposition defense that really is what you need more out of right I don't think there's enough of that really in the Chelsea attack when he's not in the team so if he can have a run of games where he feels confident and is putting together these kinds of performances where he develops that confidence and that ball does feel stuck to his foot that's when you get the best attacker in this Chelsea side Christian Pulisic back and so it really I, I hope in the international break he can feel some of that you're playing against Jamaica you're playing against Northern Ireland hopefully against weaker opposition he's able to kind of build up some confidence so when he comes back to Chelsea he is that player again because that player is it brings a dynamic as you mentioned that no other Chelsea player brings but it needs to kind of come with some flow and a run of games maybe this is is a sort of a thing with Christian Pulisic where he's a later end of the season type of player. There are some parallels here between this season and last season. Last season, he was getting used to a new league, a new team, new tactics. This year, without Frank Lampard being the manager throughout, I think maybe you can blame some of the dispossessions that he's had under Thomas Tuchel and are not exactly knowing where some of his teammates are going to be, being a little unsure of himself in the attack. And that stuff should get better with time. So this might be the beginning uh, of a Christian Pulisic that can be a match-winning Christian Pulisic again for this club. And it couldn't be happening at a better time for Chelsea FC. Massive for the club to just keep the winning ways. Thomas Tuchel hasn't been defeated as Chelsea manager. That is wild. It's wild that Chelsea haven't lost here. 
any other takeaways from this game other than Hakeem Ziyech seems like a totally different player now that he has the confidence. And I want him to go for goal more. He has a real special quality. Some of those goals, I know the first one wasn't exactly pretty, and he kind of struggled with that at the beginning of the season too, that he should have done better with stuff. But that was a real quality finish against Sheffield United. He has a special boot the Moroccan magician does. I'd like to see him go for goal more. Yeah, I mean, he's got that ability to cut inside and the same way that you can shape a ball for a cross, you can shape a shot into the top left corner, right? I'm kind of waiting for one of those to come off where cuts inside and it's just a perfectly bent ball into the top corner. So he, he's definitely one that I, I agree uh, stood out. Just from a defensive point of view, I thought it was interesting that in order to give Aspilicueta a rest, they moved Christensen to the right of the back three and had Zuma anchor the middle and just in general, Christensen continuing to play well came off because he had an illness that stopped him from playing against Atletico but another clean sheet and doesn't really seem to matter who's in there although give away a few more chances and maybe you were expecting to but for me I think every time you see that zero on the board that's why Chelsea can play poorly in the attack or have moments where they're suffering a little bit and you still are confident they're going to grind out the result. That's a kind of very customarily Chelsea thing from when they first rose to prominence in the mid-2000s wasn't always pretty but they kept clean sheets and they won matches. And so I think the fact that Chelsea are getting back to that identity must give the fans a real sense of positivity. I love that takeaway that you took from the lineup. I had a couple of takeaways from the lineup. Number one, there were two of them, um, which was very confusing to me. <laughs> I was trying to go, wait, wait, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. that's right. They announced, a, they announced a lineup. I'm like, wow, this is a, an aggressive. We're really going for it against Sheffield United. Yeah, it's, it's a strong odd. team. It's very odd. And then... Pulisic, I'm like, so Pulisic's going to be a wing back, And then the, the next lineup comes up, and, and you see the difference. But uh, the Christensen thing, we were sort of theorizing, is Thiago Silva in a positional battle right now? Because Christensen's playing so well. The illness may make you forget how well Christensen was playing, but then he comes back, playing a new position, does equally well. I think you could see Thiago Silva and Andreas Christensen both in the starting eleven post-international break here for Chelsea. And it was cool to see Thomas Tuchel toy with that. You can understand why he wants Thiago Silva as a main central defender along that back line, to be fair. You give him the credit that he's earned throughout his career, as good as Christensen has been there. If Christensen can prove to be competent at right center back, we'll make that his position. And a pairing of Thiago Silva and Christensen along that back line cooking the way that they are right now it's going to be even harder to score on Chelsea if you can imagine that and I imagine post-international break is what Thomas Tuchel has been targeting for Thiago Silva because they've been very careful with him in this injury and they do catch a little bit of a break in that South America are not doing World Cup qualifiers during this international break because of the COVID rules you can't quarantine in South America for seven days and then play to international fixtures and then come back and quarantine after that. So in the end, Comeball canceled their World Cup qualifier, so there's no chance of Thiago Silva getting called in. So I imagine, you know, with everyone mostly out on international duty, he's the one who kind of stays behind to really work on his fitness. And Thomas Tuchel can kind of work with his three players in our, that aren't in an international team right now, build up their fitness so that Thiago Silva can come back out of the break and return into that back three. And I, I'd also be curious if maybe Christensen can play the left of the back three, you know, with Aspiliqueta playing uh, on the right. You have so many options right now. And it's interesting because we talked about Kurt Zuma being someone who might not figure in Tuchel's plans, but he's getting some starts and he doesn't look out of place. Like it's, it doesn't look, I, I thought he was only in a back four, but he can play in the back three as well. 
yeah, the system seems to be getting results no matter who's back yeah. there. Heck, look at the players that have turned around this Chelsea defense. It's the same players that plenty of people were complaining about prior to on a bunch of message boards. Let's turn our attention to the draw. Chelsea had very good luck in the Champions League draw. Make sure to go through our archives and check out the emergency pod that we did, sort of celebrating the fact that Chelsea had a very good draw for the Champions League. Leicester and Southampton available in the pot, but so is Manchester City and Chelsea. And Chelsea draws Manchester City. Can't really complain coming off the heels of uh, that favorable draw in the Champions League. You're going to have to beat Man City at some point to win this cup, right? Yeah. So might as well get it out of the way. Chelsea draw another Manchester team back-to-back years in the semifinals last year. Put up one of the better performances of the Frank Lampard era against Manchester United in the Wembley semifinal to get to the finals where they inevitably lost to Arsenal. Things might have been different if Christian Pulisic doesn't pull up lame in that game. But I value this competition. You're in it. You might as well win it. It's a, a nice story to tell. And might I remind you that in 2012, Chelsea had a lackluster Premier League season. Wouldn't have even made it into the Champions League had they not introduced a new rule that said reigning Champions League champion teams could actually qualify for the very next year. So Chelsea actually won a double that year. The FA Cup and the Champions League. Both things are very much in play. If you want to harken back to 2012 and see if there are any similarities, yet another one for Chelsea Football Club. And with this draw with Manchester City, it is interesting because you'd have to think that City are going to drop one of these competitions that they're in, right? So in the last month and a half, two months of the season, they'll come back from the international break and they'll still be in the Champions League. They're probably going to win the Premier League, almost definitely going to win the Premier League. Then they play Borussia Dortmund and the winner of Bayern Munich and PSG in the Champions League. In the Carabao Cup final, they play Tottenham Hotspur, and then they play Chelsea in this semifinal, and then the winner of Leicester and Southampton, you know, the, the, the winner of this match plays the winner of that match in the final. I can't see them winning all the competitions. I, I really can't. And you might catch Man City at a time when maybe they're progressing to a Champions League semifinal and the FA Cup isn't as much of a priority. Pep takes every competition seriously, but at some point, these games stack in significance on top of each other. So maybe you catch Man City on an off day. And as imperious as they've been for you know winning 20 matches in a row, they've shown a few vulnerabilities. Even when they've won, you know they, they, they lost to Manchester United, but... Their recent performances haven't been sensational. I mean, against Everton, they were pretty drab for 80 minutes uh, before you arrived there. But I think Chelsea can definitely rely on their defensive strength to maybe keep City at bay a little bit. And you hope from an attacking standpoint that for them it's an off day and Chelsea can convert the chances that you'll get, which might be uh, in relative scarcity in the semifinal. And given the rotation that we can expect in that game, barring any injuries... U.S. on U.S. crime. Pulisic mm. against Zach Steffen in that game, potentially. Zach Steffen remains unbeaten as the Manchester City goalkeeper. Really? Yeah, he's, he started 10 matches and he's won all of them. So <laughs> it would be uh, interesting if Pulisic can, uh, can get the better of his national team teammate. That's impressive. I didn't know that about Zach Steffen. All right. We have a, a real good interview here with Sam Page, who's joined us on the pod several times over. Great insight into what's going on at the academy and how that bridges to the first team squad. So made numerous appearances on our show at this point. He's family. So we really enjoyed our time with Sam. We hope you enjoy the interview coming up next. Introducing Perfect Play, the most advanced football training app available. Developed with and used by the Chelsea FC Academy. Built with innovative player tracking technology. 
featuring masterclasses from some of football's biggest stars. Offering world-class, personalised football coaching. So train with the best and become the player you want to be. Start training for free. Download on the App Store now. Sam, at a club like Chelsea, you've been there for a long time and you've seen a lot of managers come and go. Sometimes some managers come and go multiple times. And for those here in America that don't have a deeper understanding of how the academy system works, how much direction do you take from the managers or do you, as someone in charge of the academy, come up with a philosophy that can remain consistent over the years as players in this academy go through it? Different clubs will do things in different ways. Um, and the way we have gone about it over the last few years is we have a technical program which we deliver to our academy players, which essentially is trying to prepare players for to play senior football in, in you know anywhere between eight to ten years' time. So what we've been really fortunate to do um, over the course of the time that I've been there is we've been able to take the best bits, really, from all of the different managers that have kind of come and gone and, and their different playing philosophies and, you know, essentially led by Neil Bath, the head of youth development, what we do is we rewrite our technical programme, we'll kind of review our technical programme every two to three years. And as part of that, what we do is we take the playing philosophy from the current or previous manager and we go, well, what bits of that really work for our players? Because essentially, like I say, we're trying to prepare those players for eight to ten years time and most likely a different first team manager anyway. So what we need to do is we need to make them really uh, tactically adaptable and we need to expose them to a broad range of different playing styles and playing principles. And we do that by constantly reviewing and updating our what we call playing principles. And those have been through many iterations over the time that I've been there, uh, right the way through from, I guess, Jose's first influence and a big focus on transition, right the way through to, I suppose, some of the current trends we're seeing um, in the Premier League now. Football has changed a lot since Jose was first with Chelsea. In your biannual reviews, what's the single biggest difference nowadays than when you first started at, in terms of what you're teaching the youth? I suppose when when I first started, we were probably one of few teams that would play that kind of 4-3-3 formation. And, you know, we felt at the time that was really beneficial for the overall development of our players. So as soon as they hit 11 aside, they would play that kind of one and or two and one in midfield with that number 10. But we would sometimes change that. We would sometimes play a one and two in midfield. And essentially it would it would breed towards that kind of possession based style, which at that time was something which really only the, the bigger teams really, really kind of played and played effectively. Now, obviously, you're seeing all teams, you know, playing a much more kind of possession-based style at times. But then also now we're seeing this, I guess, this kind of era of counter-attacking and counter-pressing, which has become really prevalent across lots of those different teams. Equally, across teams that are doing really well in the Premier League, but equally teams that that kind of get into the Premier League and, and, and trying to stay up and, and kind of hit that kind of... I suppose, progressing into those mid-table and European places, different playing styles. So I think that's been the really interesting transition that I've seen over that time is going from a more direct style to a possession-based style to almost now, do we really need the ball all of the time type style? And, and that's that's been fascinating for us to try and encourage our players to understand that sometimes you do need the ball, but equally it's about what you do when you don't have the ball. And then as soon as you get the ball, what, what's the thing that you need to do? And the group that I work with, that under 11s and 12s, where we're really trying to focus in on, I suppose, playing as part of a bigger team, this notion of what can you do for your teammates when you get the ball? What do we want to do as a team is a really, uh, really important aspect. 
On kind of a more global level, because we're talking about it in the context of Chelsea managers, but how much are trends in the game? Like, for example, a lot of teams try and play out from the back now, way more than probably you know, 20 years ago. Would you start to see that in academy football first and then it made its way into senior teams? Or does like, you know, Pep's Barcelona in 2008 explode and now everyone wants to play from the back at youth level? Yeah, again, that, that's been a really interesting evolution, I think, is that, again, you know, go back to when we, we kind of first came up with our playing principles. We first wrote our technical program and we were fortunate to kind of lead the way, I think, in terms of the way the more national picture of academy football looked in England. We were probably one of the the first teams to really talk to our players about playing out. And, and we would talk about that with our players from a really, really young age. And we would try to, I guess, make them feel comfortable about that transition. You know, they've come from a, maybe a grassroots team, that kind of recreational level, or they, they've come from just, you know, playing school football where, you know, the, it was always get the ball forward, get the ball forward to probably the best player who's probably a striker, who's probably going to dribble past three and, and score. And actually what we were trying to encourage them to do was actually we're going to play through the thirds. We're going to use all of our players. And actually, do you know what? As a defender, whether it's a central defender, you're going to have to be really good on the ball. We were probably one of the first academies, I think, that, that were doing that consistently. And now you've seen, like you say, Chris, that global trend of all teams now um, at academy level are doing it. I think it's quite refreshing, to be honest with you, because, you know, we, we've seen this, I suppose, some would argue a more pure style of football. Uh, it's more aesthetically pleasing, but it's still funny to listen to, to commentators and pundits and uh, question it when it when it happens and when the inevitable errors happen. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to see how our young players can deal with it and do deal with it now, and are just so accustomed to it. But you know, it sometimes leads to mistakes, and that's just the nature of um, that particular style. Sam, I want to ask you about an academy product that's come on recently with the first team, seemingly out of the blue, really working hard and making a real positive impact in the squad, and that's Andreas Christensen. We had Pat Nevin on recently on the podcast, and he said, Andreas is actually at that age where you really see a huge development. It's sort of counterintuitive because I know all the top clubs are going youth, youth, youth. There's almost like a lack of patience with just a 21-year-old and someone in their mid-20s like Andreas, you really put a big investment in that player, why is it different for defenders? Why do they actually season on a timeline that's more consistent with what we saw in the '90s and early 2000s? Yeah, I mean, Andres is a really interesting character because he, you know, when he signed for us, he was always a very mature player, even as a you know a young player playing. Um, I remember him playing in the in the FA Youth Cup, working with him when he you know he, he first came over, and uh, you, you know he just had that level of maturity. I think that composure very calm in possession. And I think really, you know, uh, the sort of player that makes the game look easy and it's, it's brilliant to see him performing so well. It's brilliant to see, I think him showing that composure. And again, it goes back to what we were talking about. The fact that players at the back need to be able to show that calmness, that composure, you know, sometimes be able to stay on the ball. We talk about that with our young players as a defender. Sometimes you might need to stay on the ball, be patient, allow your midfield players just that extra couple of seconds to get into that right space to just pull away from that player. And Andrea seems to, to you know, be able to recognise when he needs to stay on the ball, when he needs to play it quick. And, and like I say, just to have that level of calmness and composure. And, and that seems to have just kind of increased over over the years. And he's been through some ups and downs as well. I think that's been a, a really fascinating aspect to his journey is that he's been on that loan journey. And, and also he's come in and he's been in and out of the team. But I guess that probably shows some of the, I suppose, 
mental skills, those psychological characteristics that we discussed before and how important they are, that he's overcome those. And it's fantastic to see him performing so well. It makes sense because players like uh, Andreas and even Kurzuma, who really fit a, a prototypical style when they were coming up, the game evolved when they were supposed to be making first team contributions. And now they have to reshape themselves as footballers, how much more difficult is that after you crack the first team as opposed to the developmental stages that you assist in? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the key thing there is the value that we place on the loan system and the, the loan journey that, that those players go on. And when they go on that journey, they get an opportunity to be exposed to so many different styles of coach, of coaching, of playing style, of opponent. And I think that's an absolute massive part of that journey. And, and we definitely consider that to be a big part of the academy journey. Obviously, we're discussing here players that join us relatively late in the system. But when we're talking to our younger players, we're definitely envisaging them having to use that loan segment of their academy journey to really maximise their ability to overcome some of those difficulties and to learn that different style because football is evolving so so fast and we try and speed up their appreciation of that evolution by going kind of throwing in those different environments for which you know inevitably those who succeed have learned to cope in those different environments thrive come back and then they're able to deal with maybe a changing manager a changing playing style at our club I want to talk about uh, something that we, we mentioned at the beginning, which was defending from the front and how much that has evolved, particularly under the current manager, Thomas Tuchel. When you're teaching those kinds of skills, what would you say are like the two most important things beyond just hard work and effort? What are the important bits of being a good counterpresser or presser generally? You know, interestingly, it is something we, we discuss a lot. And one of our playing principles is to have a, a clear pressing strategy. And we talk about having probably a preference for a high press. You know, the age group, again, that I work with, the under 11s and 12s, you know, we did a session not so long ago. We really focused in on it. And actually what we did is we showed some of our lads prior to the training session a few video clips of Mason. And what we asked them to do is go, you know, what, what do you notice about the way he pressed? What makes him such an excellent presser? And then as we go into the session that kind of next day, what we're, we're asking them is, OK, well, what do you notice about when he presses? What are the triggers that help him to, to identify the right time to press? So almost on a kind of perceptive level, you know, that recognition of, well, actually, is it a, a slightly uh, mishit pass? Is it a little bit, the weight of the pass isn't quite right for the opponent that's about to receive it. So then you kind of pounce and jump on that one. Is it like it's going to be a miscontrol? Is it actually that he, that, that player hasn't scanned, the opponent hasn't scanned to see that you might, and you might come on the blind side, those type of things. And the players were picking it up and it was really, really fantastic to hear them having watched those video clips of Mason, then be able to talk to us about it. And then we go and put it on in a practice where they're, where they're sort of triggering those type of, I guess, those key skills, which help Mason to be a really good presser. Equally, it's a physical thing as well. You know, people talk about uh, Mason, you know, the, the kind of quickness over that short distance. So it's it's a mental thing. It's a physical thing in terms of speed and when to do it. But, and also then it's the, the effectiveness of using your body, the technique of the press as well. When you make the right tackle, what part of your body you use to kind of make that tackle, all of those things. And it's absolutely massive as part of our programme. In recent years, a legitimate path from the academy to the first team has opened up. And I, I understand that first team footballers have a loaded schedule, but I'm curious how many of those academy products that have pushed all the way through put back what they got out of the academy and try to teach some of the youth and come by and just show that, hey, by merely being here, you know that you can make it. You see me wearing the same training jacket you do. And then 
let me, on top of that, impart some knowledge. How much of, are you seeing that at the academy level? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, we're a little bit restricted by, obviously, the, the COVID situation. So that there's probably less contact uh, between our different groups of people that train at, at our Cobham uh, training facility at different times. So one of the ways around that, we recently returned to training, you know, not too long ago, because obviously we had a situation in England where there was a, another lockdown and, and we weren't able to train. So we were fully online. But we recently came back and we were all really excited. And as part of our kind of welcome back presentation that we did on Zoom with all of our players and parents say, look, welcome back. We're starting next week, et cetera, et cetera. Mason produced a video for us, which was a lovely video just saying, look, you know, he's really he, he spent time looking at all of our um, online activities that the players have done, the kind of work they've done in their um, online virtual learning environments. You know, he, he's been so impressed with what they've been doing. He's so proud of the work that they're putting in. Um, and he can't wait to see them back at, at Cobham really soon. And that's just, I think that's a really nice touch of how we're trying to build this kind of, I suppose, this connection between the academy now and the first team is amazing. And this kind of one club uh, type environment that we're having, we're really starting to see, I guess, those players are really embodying it. And I think it's just really nice. It's, you know, the players came in that first training session and they, you know, you overhear them talk, do you see that video of Mason? Oh, it was brilliant. It's fantastic. I mean, it just enthuses them. And I think it's it's great that we, we you know, we, we certainly have that now from the recent past, I guess, and seeing some of our lads playing on the first team. It's got to be a delight for you, especially because you saw Mason when he was one of those little kids saying, oh, I can't believe so-and-so is talking to us. And now he's paying it back. It's really cool to see Sam. It's always a delight catching up with you. It gives our listeners really great insight just to how this Chelsea culture is built from the academy on down. Always enjoy our time with you. Can't wait to speak with you again. Yeah, no worries. It's great to share. See you later. Get the latest Chelsea news straight to your phone. Download the Fifth Stand app, the official Chelsea app. All right, we hope that you find our next guest very interesting. There's a really cool project going on right now on all of Chelsea FC's social media handles. And of course, the U.S. social media handle that we always encourage you to follow at Chelsea FC in USA is the Chelsea FC Five Burrows Project. Melody Cole is a world-renowned photographer, and he worked with the club on this very cool project, and we want you to check it out. We're going to have Mel D. Cole on next, and he's going to tell us all about it. Really neat to have Mel D. Cole talk to us about this really interesting project that he worked with Chelsea FC on to explore the five boroughs of New York and introduce some stories of some Chelsea supporters along the way. Uh, Mel, thank you so much for joining us here on Chelsea Miked Up. Uh, number one, how'd this come to be? Mel D. Cole working with Chelsea FC. Woo, a long time. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> took a long time, but I uh, finally broke through and uh, got my seat at the table, per se. Uh, yeah, just networking. Basically, uh, Herb from... FC Harlem has been a, a major player and how this went down. There's Adam who actually works at Chelsea. And um, yeah, believe it or not, COVID, you know, hit. And um, a lot of things transpired for me being known for being this hip hop photographer for the last 20 years. And then I started my own agency called Charcoal Pitch FC, which is the first and only black photo agency dedicated to telling black soccer stories in the world. So uh, when uh, COVID hit, I uh, started shooting Black Lives Matter stuff and a lot of people started to take notice. So LinkedIn was a big component and Adam from from Chelsea put it out there like, oh, look at Mel's work, it's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And then next thing you know, agency comes in and next thing you know, 
you produce it and direct it and hosting and photographing five uh, different people from five boroughs and we climb it all together. We call it Chelsea's Five Boroughs and it's amazing. I can't wait for everyone to watch it. Did I answer the question? No, you did. Yeah. Uh, quite well. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot there. Yeah, uh, there's a, certainly a, a lot to chew on. And uh, we're certainly familiar with the FC Harlem story. And the people there, the team have done such a great job in, in fighting back a lot of this institutional racism that is in this pay-to-play youth soccer system right. here in the United States. And, and I'm curious, what drew you to the beautiful game in the first place? Because, I mean, from a, a treetop view, someone who, who's noted, who, who made his name in the hip hop game, photographing some of the, the hip hop game's greatest artists, that might be viewed as like, oh, that's really niche, uh, <laughs> the game of <laughs> soccer. Um, so how'd that come to be? All right, I'll, I'll show you. It came from... <laughs> oh, we can play another FIFA, the, another FIFA story. Another FIFA answer. <laughs> it's amazing the reach of that game. Yes, <laughs> the reach is huge. Uh, you know, big... Buffalo Bills fan, and uh, I always loved Madden. I always, I've been playing video games since, you know, forever, Atari 2600. You know, you, you go from Tecmo Bowl, and then you're on Madden. And, you know, over the last 10 years, 10 years ago, I kind of got tired of playing Madden. I needed something something else. And I, was, I always looked at, uh, you know, soccer growing up uh, as like, uh, you know, this – white guys play that sport only. It's not for me. It's not for black people because I never saw black people play the sport. So I had absolutely no relationship with it at all. And um, living in New York, sometimes you go out to drink, the game is on and I have a variety of different friends. And a couple of my friends like it, they like the sport. You got world cup parties or whatever, but I'm still kind of like, eh, one zero, Two, like what is going oh, on here all what? the hits what? playing all the hits yeah, all of what is this all sides thing what's, what? a, what's a tie yeah like there's no ties <laughs> so um i i just one night i was like let me try out this fifa thing and and literally within two weeks i taught myself the basic rules come on okay i didn't know everything guys but i taught myself how to play taught myself how to you know, what offsides meant. And then from there on out, it was, it was a wrap. Like I literally, like uh, it, it morphed into becoming my favorite sport overall, where the Bills are still my favorite team. But soccer, slash football, whatever you want to call it in the world, is my absolute favorite sport. So that's like, that was the, the parallel, the transition. Good old video game. <laughs> as, as for many people so this can be a passion right you could be a fan of a sport but it might not necessarily be your work how did you transition kind of this newfound interest in soccer into something that you wanted to work on right and document stories that i would imagine probably make accessibility for african-american people is, is a huge part of it right almost making soccer seem cool in a way yes 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 well it, it, my first foray into the soccer world on the business side was i did a collaboration with Umbro. I did five jerseys and five hats with them in 2018. And um, after that, I uh, continued to, you know, document music, but also a light bulb went off. I was like, I want to photograph soccer. Like, I've never photographed sports in my life. Why not? Give it a try. Send out some emails and they're like, oh, this is what you did before. Okay, here, go. And I'm just like, really? Okay. Like, that, it was that easy? Because you know, it's normally not that easy, but I guess I forgot, like, you know, humbly speaking, who I am. And um, 
Yeah, it, it literally just transformed. And next thing you know, uh, you know, you you get to produce and direct five amazing videos for one of the biggest clubs in the entire world, uh, which is I'm still like, I'm still shell shocked that I you know had this amazing opportunity. You'd be stunned at how many fans along the way, especially based out here in America, that gravitated towards Chelsea because of FIFA. FIFA has really mm. uh, been the game's uh, biggest draw in terms of an American audience. And, and a lot of people are like, I'm unstoppable with Drogba. And that's how they found right, right. Chelsea <laughs> FC. Now, I know you, you, you found this partnership through LinkedIn. I don't know who your team was in FIFA. Was there a leaning towards Chelsea? When, when Chelsea popped up in your <laughs> inbox, you're like, I got to do that. Is that your team now? I mean, they have an affiliation no. with FC Harlem and you're wearing the FC Harlem hoodie right now. I, I would not say that Chelsea is my team, but when it comes to business, I am all about all teams. <laughs> I love he's, the he's, League. He's uh, a neutral photographer. But I do have, obviously, I have a soft spot for Chelsea. I, I'm, I'm a big Diego Costa fan. I really love it. I actually have his jersey in my closet. Like, I'm not, I don't care about, you know, when it comes to my good jersey collection of who or what team they play, as long as I love the kid, I'm owning it. But, uh, yeah, I, I have a soft spot for Chelsea. I mean, I've seen them play, working with them. Uh, I've probably seen them play more times than any other club, uh, honestly. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, soft spot. Look at yeah, that, and also, they're a client now. I like the, that you learned offsides through playing FIFA. Meanwhile, I've been watching the game for like two decades, and I still have no idea what offsides uh, is now that VAR exists. Well, sometimes and... I don't. <laughs> yeah. You don't know. Yeah, yeah. VAR comes in place. You're like, wait, so his toenail was over just a smidgen? You could tell that? It's impossible, All right. it's impossible to get yeah. anybody. Um, so what are you looking for as a photographer um, when highlighting the game specifically? What about soccer artistically can you frame? What is it about the specific actions of soccer do you find the most photogenic? Well, first of all, the black people in the sport and not just the black, the black people on the pitch. Uh, I mean, the fans, I'm interested in the, uh, the, the you know, the, the stadium workers, the behind the scene people like I, I, all encompassing that make, you know, soccer work. Um, I'm interested in it all. As far as like what I look for in photos, just it, it depends on the situation. You know, most importantly, I love action. I love drama. I love, you know, when the, when the goal goes in. Yes, that's amazing what's on the field, but I want to turn around and find that fan that's just freaking out with emotion that, you know, he's like, ah, you know, that that is an important photo to me. And that tells the story of the goal almost more importantly than the goal itself. So, you know, I, it's a lot like uh, when I think about how I shoot music, you know, it, it's the same. Like when I'm shooting an exciting artist on stage like Tyler, the creator, you know, he's so energetic. It's the same energy, same, same way, same, same everything, same nuances. Um, and both are just amazing. All right. So let's uh, <clears throat> tell the people about what you've done for Chelsea here. So at Chelsea FC in USA is where all these videos will air. The first one launched on the day we're recording, uh, March the 24th, is probably releasing on the 25th. But you'll be telling stories of five different Chelsea fans from the five boroughs. Can you just tell the people what they're going to be expecting? Yeah, they're also they're going to be on their their universal Facebook as well. So we're yes. going big time. Not just yeah. not just uh, dedicated to the U.S. but all around the world. 
Um, so we have uh, five boroughs. If you got, if anybody's listening and nationally and don't know the geographic locations in, in New York City, we have Queens, we have Manhattan, we have Brooklyn, Staten Island, and we have the Bronx. And uh, each one of these stories are going to focus on one super fan from each of these boroughs. Uh, Candace, we have Ty, we have Joseph, who plays for R- FC Harlem, who uh, lives in Harlem, Manhattan. We have uh, Edgar from the Bronx, all people, brown skin, uh, black folks. And there are some amazing stories where you'll hear um, just how, I mean, for me, I find it amazing for one that the love and the passion someone can have for a team that's thousands of miles away. I see when I go to the games there, I'm just like, I melt with emotion seeing like how important Chelsea is to not only to the fans, but to the community and have that same importance thousands of miles away. You know, these fans, one guy told me, Edgar told me, he said, I love the fans, but the shirt is more important to me, the club. And it just made me want to ball up and cry like, ah, (laughs) thank you. This is the best answer. Like you couldn't, I couldn't have scripted this better for you to say this. You know, we have Ty and Queens who got involved with Chelsea for his, he heard about what FC Harlem is doing with them in the association. And he said, okay, they're associated with black folks, you know, and, and I see that they, they feel black people. That's it for me. And, and he zeroed in and that's how he became a fan. So you see, you'll hear a lot of stories uh, like that from five different players and, and five different players, but we have one as a player, but five different people. And you'll see my face a lot, take some photos and all that good stuff. A lot of drone shots. I mean, it's absolutely, it's it's beautiful what we've done. Really excited to check out this project over the coming weeks. Uh, Mel, uh, very political answer on your favorite club, but <laughs> that doesn't uh, quelch any of my excitement in wanting to check out yeah. this really amazing project uh, and, uh, and your work. Uh, you're massive on Instagram and you've done really powerful pieces. So thank you so much for your work and your art, sir, especially this project, which is really cool and close to our hearts is uh, the official Chelsea FC podcast. Great getting to know you and uh, learn these stories that you're going to be telling in the coming weeks. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm really happy uh, that you guys have me here. This is an honor, you know, and uh, go Chelsea, of course, except for, you know. <laughs> no, 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 please don't do it. Please don't do it. <laughs> This is Mason Mount, and you're listening to Chelsea Mic'd Up, the official podcast of the Blues. We will turn our attention momentarily to the Chelsea women, but we are in the midst of an international break, and Chelsea have a uh, a continental squad, as Luis Miguel Echegaray likes to call them <laughs> when he tries to describe their chances, which he deems favorable in the Champions League. Chelsea have an international squad and many great players for Chelsea are out on international duty, but it's international duty during a pandemic, which seems counterintuitive on the surface, but it's necessary. They got to start making up some of these games and uh, the Euros are right around the corner as managers are starting to put pressure on some of these clubs. Like, look, we've made plenty of concessions. We need to see who fits as we start narrowing down our squads in advance of this summer's 
Euro 2020 tournament. Yes. 2020 in 2020. Sticking with the brand, but yeah. as are the Olympics, by the way. It's yeah, a, it's a, the 2020 Olympics Which, in 2021. The the Olympics is another one that's actually pretty interesting from like an American perspective. Because I mean, it's not a big deal in Europe, but like the U.S. are currently in qualifying. They won their first two matches against the Dominican Republic and Costa Rica. All they have to do is win a semifinal to get to the Olympics. But after a summer in which you know the U.S. might play Nations League Gold Cup. Christian Pulisic is eligible for the Olympics, right? Like, the best U.S. men's national team is mostly eligible for the yeah. Olympics. Like, if you wanted to pick a Reyna, Pulisic, McKinney, Tyler Adams, all these guys are eligible for the Olympics. That's another international competition you can throw into the middle, and it would be in the middle of the club season, and Chelsea's under no obligation to release Christian Pulisic if they don't want to. Let's start there, because you and I are both American. We're men's national team fans, and this is the first time that we see a presumably fit Christian Pulisic, although he took a beating against Sheffield United. We're finally going to see him out there. He's been withheld out of abundance of caution and dealing with battles with fitness now he is out there which on the surface seems like it could be a golden generation for the men's national team now previous years the u.s men's national team has used christian pulisic differently than his club teams have what are you looking for here with Christian Pulisic and his utilization within the U.S. men's national team? Well, I think Pulisic is kind of the beginning, right? He like In the Chelsea side, you're thinking, how does he fit into Tuchel's system? How does he fit into Lampard's system? Whereas I think the U.S. system should start with Pulisic, right? So for me, you, you pluck him in at left winger and you figure the rest out from there. Like That's his best position. But my interest is always in how it fits, right? How do you get now this generation of players to work together in a system? Who is the best fullback that plays behind them? So, for instance, Sergio Dest is playing really well right now for Barcelona, but there's this thought that maybe the two best fullbacks in the U.S. setup are Dest and Reggie Cannon, who plays in Portugal. But they're both right backs. Do you move Dest to left back? How does Dest and Pulisic work? Or do you, are you better off playing Anthony Robinson, who's in week-in, week-out left back for Fulham? And so how does it fit there? Which striker is Pulisic working best off of? Is it Sargent? Is it Daryl DK, who's had a really good run for Barnsley in the championship? Which midfield, that like, do you get the balance right in terms of getting some defensive steel with some creativity? Where does Gio Reyna fit with, with Christian Pulisic? Because I think Reyna, in an ideal world, would probably play in that same position. So it really is fit with, as you said, this generation of talent. We don't really know what it is yet because it hasn't played with a national team before, right? We know that at club level, these young players are achieving things we've never seen American players achieve, but that's not necessarily the national team. So I think it's fit. And how does Greg Berhalter make all these pieces work? Let's turn our attention to the English national team because uh, loads of Chelsea players are dealing with English national team duty, both on the senior team and the U21. Callum hudson Adoy with the U21s and just a loaded U21 team in England, really. Super loaded as well. What do you make of uh, just England on the whole and uh, how these Chelsea players fit in? They operate under a different system. So you actually have players like Reese James and Ben Chilwell maybe getting back to their comfort zone a little bit as they've actually been stretched a little bit under Thomas Tuchel. But look, Ben Chilwell is the first choice left back for England. I imagine he's got to be going back to what he used to be for Chelsea. Well, I, I do think that he does now have some competition in the form of Luke Shaw, who's played pretty well for Manchester United. So I think, you know, it, it'll, it will be interesting, again, over the course of three games in a week, you will see Ben Chilwell start at least one of those games at left back. But now there's legitimate competition for that place, which is a good thing, right? I think Ben Chilwell 
in November is unquestioned England left back, unquestioned Chelsea left back, and now he's got to compete. And this is a little bit of adversity for a player who Ben Chilwell wasn't necessarily thought of as like a you know an immensely talented youngster coming through. He's a player who got an opportunity at Leicester, took that opportunity, and now has become a really good full national teamer and full Chelsea player. So I do think he's got that competition. For me, the interesting thing is you mentioned Reese James call into this team. It's at the expense of Trent Alexander-Arnold. Trent Alexander-Arnold is not in this national team. And it's kind of crazy when you think of that, just that right back position alone. Reese James is in it. Kieran Trippier has been really good for Atletico, is in. He's kind of a little bit off the radar in English terms because he's playing in Spain. And you have Kyle Walker in the side as well, who plays occasionally at center back for Gareth Southgate, but can play right back as well. But really, Reese is in this team at the expense of Trent Alexander Arnold. Gareth Southgate had to call Trent Alexander Arnold and be like, hey, sorry, man, it's just not working for you right now. This is a guy who a lot of people thought best fullback in the world now isn't even cracking the England side because a player like Reese James is taking a spot. Yeah, I was uh, shouting from the mountaintops that the wrong Liverpool player got player of the season. I mean, don't get me started on how Jordan Henderson wins at a horn. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't rate him that way. But Trent Alexander-Arnold was phenomenal last year. Not the same player at all this year. Is it the Van Dyke stuff? Is it that the player himself has regressed? He's at a young enough age that you shouldn't be too overly concerned, but he's moving in the wrong direction. You shouldn't be regressing as a player. I know he's had his bouts with fitness too, and, and you must be fair to the player and introduce that to the discussion when you're trying to grade a season on the whole, but I was actually thinking about it the other day. I'm like, I think I rate Reese James more than I do Trent Alexander-Arnold right now, and that's crazy considering the gulf between the two players just last year. And also... In the Tuchel era, you would have said that Reese might have been sacrificed because Callum Hudson Adoy was playing that position at the beginning of it. But Reese, I think, was really good in those two legs against Atletico Madrid and has earned this place in the England side now. But I mean, think about the from an English perspective. Now, Gareth Southgate is going to have to make some tough choices. You have to leave players out of his starting eleven and out of his squad that might come back to bite him uh, come the end of the tournament if they don't go on to win it. But the idea that you can have Trent Alexander-Arnold in your national team pool and he basically is now decided, Gareth Southgate, that he's fourth choice, that's insane. Like That just shows a strength and depth at that position and just generally with England that they've got so many good young talents coming through. And look, they've got their national team program sorted. I mean, when we were when I was coming up in soccer, England were always a team that were disappointments at major tournaments and, you know, weren't developing players like everyone else. And now, like in 10 years, it's, wow, what a strength and depth they have. Well, the more things change, the more they may say the same. Right. They might still disappoint <laughs> at a major tournament. Be, yeah, yeah, but they're at least developing the players. Now their generation of great players seems to be younger. Plenty of opportunity for the English players to find joy against San Marino in Albania. So if you want to see some highlight reel stuff from Mason Mount, Reese James, and Ben Chilwell, whichever one of those two games, hopefully they start, it'd be cool to see all three in the same lineup. That'd be nice to see. Cal Munson Adoy with U21 duty. None of these countries that we've mentioned, by the way, are in the UK's red zone, which is something that has to be part of the conversation when we're talking about international duty amidst the pandemic. Right now, it doesn't seem like any of these Chelsea players that are going out on international duty have to quarantine, so that's very good. Andreas Christensen, he was actually playing a defensive midfielder for Denmark and would get even friskier in the attack on international duty. Now, with his emergence on the club side as a very solid defender, I wonder if they move him back along that back line, but... When you talk about the Danes, they're not really this brilliant talent. Andreas Christensen's one of the best soccer talents that country has ever produced. You want to get him as close to the attack, if he's attack-minded, as humanly possible. So I don't really envision him 
playing the same position that he does for Chelsea, I think we might still see him in that midfield position. Yeah, it's interesting for some of these countries that don't produce as much talent. Even the defenders have the ball skills that are requisite with the midfielders in their national team pool. I think of, like, for example, David Alaba playing for Switzerland in their midfield because it just seems like you're not getting enough out of a player if you put him at left back, right, that he can contribute so much more to the team. And I think for Christensen, it's a similar story. But and if you're Denmark, I mean, Denmark has had some success off the back of how good they are defensively. So I do think that given Christensen's form, you do want to at least play to that strength. Like I said with Pulisic, if you're Denmark right now, you're kind of starting with Christensen and going from there, given how well he's playing. Germany and France, two countries that Chelsea fans always look to during international duty just because those are usually big hotbeds for Chelsea talent. You have Kai Havertz, Rudiger, and Timo Werner in duty for Germany. You have Olivier Giroud, N'Golo Kante, and Kurt Zuma getting the call up for France. With Giroud, the thing to look for is can he continue getting closer to Thierry Henry's goal scoring mark? This is a player that is rounding into form with his national team hopefully in advance of the Euros he hasn't been playing that much on the club side nearly as much as he hoped he might be playing here will he get the same sort of opportunities or will France decide to turn to another striker that's maybe been a bit more in form I think his uh, identity is so solidified within that team that we might be able to see a regular Olivier Giroud and he'll have an honest chance at catching Henri. Yeah, and it's just so interesting when you look at that France team because in some ways it is like a club team in that no matter what, Giroud is the striker, right? And again, they're playing three games, qualifier, qualifier, but they are a club team in that it doesn't matter what Giroud does away you know, with, with another team or what his club situation is. He's important to that system and their way of playing. Like you mentioned, this kind of continuity that can be really valuable on the international stage. Everyone kind of knows that Giroud is the reference point. So I would imagine Wissam Ben Yedder, who plays for Monaco, will get a chance to lead the line for them. Maybe they kind of go for a more flowing formation with either Griezmann or, uh, or Anthony Martial playing up top as well. But I think we all know when it comes to France... Olivier Giroud is going to play up top. Yeah, he's like Demarcus Beasley. He's going to yeah. find his way on the team sheet no matter what because <laughs> in international duty, he's trusted. I think as we close out this international wrap-up here, I think one of the more interesting things is Jorginho, who seemed very important to Italy throughout this qualifying phase and had been playing pretty well for them, did not make the squad this time. Emerson makes the squad. In researching the segment, I was kind of surprised to find out that Jorginho wasn't there when I was looking for stuff. This guy was pretty important for Italy, and I thought at times you could make the argument that he was even playing better for country than he was for club. Not chosen. Not sure what's going on there. Yeah, Roberto Mancini was saying that uh, he he picked up a knock in his knee, so he wasn't fit to play these games, so we didn't risk him. Now, maybe it's also because, you know, World Cup qualifiers against lesser opposition, there's all the COVID situation, so it's almost an entirely Italian-based squad uh, for Roberto Mancini, but yeah, uh, Jorginho not on the side. Emerson is, though. Emerson is actually another player like Giroud, who always seems to figure more prominently for the national team than he does for Chelsea, so he'll, he'll get a chance to get a few games that would imagine at the very least a left back not a position that Italy are terribly strong in. Giving you the most up-to-date recording, truth be told, I'm gonna take you behind the curtain right now. We had most of this episode done and dusted, but we're the official Chelsea podcast and we've been giving plenty of attention to the Chelsea women's side and we wanted to make sure we gave you the most up-to-date recap. So hours before this episode posted, Chris Whittingham and I 
got together, compared notes, and broke down a match, Chris, that my biggest takeaway from was I could actually watch it. This is massive <laughs> yes. for my Chelsea FC <laughs> women fandom. Chris, I was able to watch it here from the comfort of my own home whilst multitasking, and I have a lot of takeaways from this game, but that is number one, chief amongst them. Underline it, circle it three times. The accessibility of this game is going to be what grows it, even from fans of the club. You got us. We're fans of the shirt, but if we're able to watch it, And if you're able to shout it from the mountaintops, because we could have done, I'm the Chelsea FC chief propagandist, right? As host of this podcast, (laughs) we could have done a better job in messaging to plenty of fans where they could have seen this because we still had to put in a bit of work to find it. Thankfully, my computer's healthy and not making noise because this was a legal stream that I saw this game on. Your takeaway from being able to watch this amazing club. Yeah, well, as you said, the takeaway is being able to watch it, right? Like we had to we had to do some recon and, and ask some of our connections over at the club, hey, can we watch this? And it turns out it was on the Chelsea YouTube channel. Now I believe UEFA, who are actually responsible for this mess, are rectifying this next season. They're basically going to bake in the women's Champions League rights with the men's Champions League rights. That way it'll be, you would think, on Paramount Plus uh, starting from next season. But for now, every club owns their own rights. And so Chelsea put this game up on their YouTube channel. So it was really great to watch. And for me, the, the biggest takeaway from the game was I think Chelsea, for 55 minutes, were pretty lucky to still be at nil-nil. They were struggling from a defensive point of view, playing out from the back. The post came to their aid. We need to talk about Chelsea's keeper and Katrin Berger much more. Has Chelsea at this stage with penalty saves and now today comes up with a huge double save and a clearance off the line in one sequence, kept Chelsea in the game, and then that allowed them the opportunity for their attacking players to be clinical in front of goal. And that is something we've talked about with the men's team at times, but when you're not playing well and you've got brilliant attacking players, all you need is a moment. And Chelsea got two. And I thought the second goal was brilliant. Sam Kerr being unselfish, comes from pressing. Frank Kirby wins the ball. It gets enough power on the pass to get it into Kerr. She could just strike towards the near post instead. Plays it on for Pernilla Harder. Easy finish. And all of a sudden, you're 2-0 up. You do, you do give away a penalty. And so Wolfsburg are in the tie with an away goal. But I think the way that Chelsea recovered after being down, uh, not down, but kind of being outplayed for a fair bit of the match uh, was really huge. It's been the chief strategy on the women's and men's side. Just load the team with talent. Players capable of individual match-winning capabilities that could pop up when you need them most. And Sam Kerr was brilliant today. Berger was brilliant today. One of the most consistent players, Millie Bright, friend of the podcast, particularly in that first half, might have struggled a little bit, which was curious timing because I've had a tweet saved in my drafts over the last 24 hours directed at ESPN FC because of their mockery of a top 50 women's players in the world. <laughs> that was way too disrespectful to, uh, to M-Dog. Thankfully... Chelsea got their footing in that second half and you got to see the all-world players do all-world player things. And Chelsea go into this second leg in a, in a nice position here against a really, a really good team. You saw in that first half exactly why Wolfsburg had been the thorn in Chelsea's side. Yeah, they're, from an attacking point of view, their pressing was fantastic on the day, creating really good chances. It made life difficult. I was thinking another factor in this tie that is kind of overlooked is the fact that they're playing on a neutral field. They're playing in Budapest. Like, the Champions League in general, I mean, we're talking about Chelsea progressing in that competition. In our conversation about Porto, 
We didn't have a conversation about maybe having to play on a neutral field. Or even, you know, we didn't talk about it much in the Atletico tie. It's a big deal, right? Because the whole notion of the away goals rule and of all of the different ways that we talk about the Champions League is you want to have the second leg at home so that, you know, you know the, the amount of away goals and you're coming home with knowing what you need to do. That's kind of thrown out the window on a neutral field. So you're basically playing a neutral field tournament here between Chelsea and Wolfsburg. And the fact that Wolfsburg played well, you don't kind of have a lift from your home crowd or being at home or being in your home surrounds. And so Chelsea kind of had to find it from nowhere, and they did. Till we speak again. And when we speak again, massive guest, Chris Weddingham. Yes. You want to tell the people? Timo Werner is joining us here on Chelsea Mic'd Up. Turbo Timo, Mike. Turbo Timo makes his Chelsea Mic'd Up debut. I cannot wait to talk to him. I've seen interviews of uh, Timo Werner, and he looks like an absolute delight. I imagine it'll be no different here. I cannot wait to get to know Turbo Timo and for the audience to hear Turbo Timo talk about his season, honestly. So look out for that coming your way next week. Till we speak again, up the Chelsea. 